when we're talking about women specifically as they go through the menopausal transition, when we're seeing changes in reproductive hormones, that's usually what's discussed most frequently, but there's also two other hormones that can fluctuate and change or have a gradual trend or trajectory upwards during that time. And that can be insulin and cortisol. This is Mastering Menopause. By using fitness, nutrition, lifestyle, and mindset, you can master your hormones and get your body back. I'm Kathy Cote with Catalyst Fitness and Nutrition. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Mastering Menopause. I am so excited to introduce you all to Sam Miller from Sam Miller Science. Sam Miller is a best-selling author. I have his book, Metabolism Made Simple, right here. He is the founder of the Functional Nutrition and Metabolism Specialization course that myself and hundreds of other coaches have taken. And he's also the podcast host of Sam Miller Science, which I listen to regularly. I highly recommend it. Sam has more than 15 years of experience working with hundreds of coaches, overseeing thousands of clients in their health and fitness journey. And he is a certified nutritionist, a licensed board certified health practitioner who holds a master's degree from North Carolina State University and a Bachelor of Science from Elon University. He is also a dog dad. Welcome, Sam. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Yeah. I was kind of waiting for that part too, because I feel like, you know, when someone introduced you and you have all these sort of long, long things, especially as you go throughout your career and you have extra details there, I try to add a bit and come back to reality, which is just that most of the time, usually that's when I'm not working, I feel like that's where my time goes. So I appreciate the introduction. And I'm really glad that, you know, through some of those things that you mentioned, it's actually kind of how it brought us together mm -hmm. and our shared interest in women's health and helping women in their transformation. So I'm super excited to chat with you today. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation too. I know this is going to provide so much value for women that are going through menopause. So you know, I have learned so much in, in the course that I have taken and, you know, I'm now requiring any coaches that I bring on to take the course as well, right? Because they're getting so much information from that. But as far as, you know, what I have learned is that I just don't know anything, right? And there's so much more to learn, but, you know, I want to really have a conversation with you about women and menopause, and that is a huge topic. So just breaking this down, I did do an informal poll in my Facebook group of about 3000 women and the number, the top concerns were belly fat and weight gain. No surprise there. Also dealing with hot flashes and night sweats and also sleep disruptions. So I really did want to address that because one thing that I have learned in, you know, FNMS, which was which was awesome, but was that you cannot address the symptoms. You have to address the root cause. And I think for us ladies in menopause, we fail to consider the effect of stress and the lack of sleep on our bodies and how that ultimately affects our hormones in the phases of menopause. So. For sure. Yeah. I think that's a common thing that we see when women are going through that transition it can be very frustrating because what you were used to as far as your body, or think of it as almost like an operating system that you were working with for decades, it can feel like there's some both gradual and abrupt changes that occur in terms of maybe your response to recovery to previous 
you know, fitness pursuits that you enjoyed or the type of exercise that you did, maybe a certain diet or nutrition style that worked really well for you before isn't something that you're responding as well to during this time period of your life. So when we look at this sort of season and chapter, I think sleep and stress deserve special attention, especially for the perimenopausal female, just because our bodies are a little bit more stress reactive in a way we have sort of this cascade of hormonal changes. And not to mention, depending on you know, the woman's background prior to that, a lot of these women have tried different diet styles over the years. And sometimes like we're maybe applying the, maybe it's the right things at the wrong time, or maybe there's just some practices that are maybe marketed towards those women because they do need assistance. They do need support. They want help with whether it's the body fats, body composition that we talked about earlier, or if it's something more related to just dealing with those symptoms like hot flashes, sleep loss, quality of life, energy levels, and things like that. So I think it's a combination of, you know, these women are largely targeted with different marketing messages that can be very confusing. And on top of that, it's this complete sort of overhaul and change in terms of what we see in, you know, with metabolism maybe what we're responding to compared to where we were before. So a lot of women can feel like they're spinning their wheels. So it's definitely a super important topic to talk about and why I I'm, I'm, was really happy when I hopped on today. And you're like, we're going to talk a lot about sleep and stress. So I, I came ready for that one. All right. Excellent. You know, it's true. We we do end up in these all these different diets and pulled in different directions. And, um, you know, we we tend to get stuck, not everybody, but a lot of us get stuck in this kind of dieting lifestyle, not considering too like the added stress from caring for children, caring for our parents, possibly, and not and we take we tend to take on so much and don't take time for ourselves and actually parent ourselves. So I really do want to dive deep into that stress piece and and what the effect that has on the metabolism. For sure. So in when we're talking about women specifically as they go through the menopausal transition, when we're seeing changes in reproductive hormones, that's usually what's discussed most frequently, but there's also two other hormones that can fluctuate and change or have a gradual trend or trajectory upwards during that time. And that can be insulin and cortisol. Now, if you combine this with the fact that you mentioned sleep earlier, if we're having poor quality sleep because of the changes in estrogen and hot flashes, this puts us, it sort of compounds the initial issue. Like we're already having some hormonal changes and a bit of a transition, but then sleep loss will sort of compound the issue of the stress. And then couple that with being maybe a key figure, like a matriarch in your family and being a primary caregiver, having potentially still being in the latter portions of a busy career. You know, you mentioned caring for children, other family members. This can lead to a lot of additional stress on top of the physiological changes or hormonal changes that I mentioned earlier. So we have sort of this baseline, if you think of it, your body is already under stress just due to the fluctuations and change, or at least it's experiencing a shift away from what you would read in like a scientific journal or a textbook would be, they say homeostasis, but basically a move, movement away from your previous status quo. So from basically post-puberty and like early adulthood, so let's say late teens, early twenties, all the way through maybe close to when you're 40 and maybe even a little bit beyond that, if you are regularly cycling or you know, you may have had periods here or there with pregnancy and childbirth and things like that. But for the most part, it's been pretty consistent over the course of several decades. So 
while we typically use the term stress to describe perceived stress or like a psychological or emotional stressor in our life or, oh man, I'm stressed. I got stuck in rush hour traffic. There are also some internal stressors that we can experience. And a lot of times that hormonal fluctuation isn't necessarily something that is given as much attention. So we do have those changes in insulin and cortisol, and then couple that with sleep loss begins to sort of compound where women are, it can kind of exacerbate some of the issues that they're experiencing. And stress from a metabolic perspective, it's like a little bit of it, probably not too much of a problem. A Goldilocks amount is okay. But when we have a lot of it, it can begin to impact our energy levels, our digestion. So from a digestion perspective, impacting our ability to absorb our nutrients, having adequate stomach acid can also make us feel a little bit more bloated and have early fullness after meals at times. And stress can also contribute to certain nutrient deficiencies, which in this particular population, we may already have some concerns related to micronutrients. And so all of these things begin to sort of create this recipe where even though it might just seem like 5% here, 5% there, it, it sort of adds up and compounds. There's a bit of this domino effect. And then when women have a hard time getting a grasp on that or understanding where it all started, it seems like this very vicious cycle. And so that's why it's important to look, you know, as you mentioned, at the stress and sleep part, because if you if you understand that and you also have some good nutrition, exercise, lifestyle practices, you almost have a little bit more leverage. If it feels like you have a bit more, you know, ability to have, I wouldn't say just control over things, but it can kind of help to stabilize the internal environment that we're working with, right? Versus if we're still burning the candle at both ends, not getting great sleep, super high stress, that's not really an ideal environment in terms of how how receptive we're going to be to our nutrition, but also what's going on with those hormones because we're already experiencing changes in the first place. Yeah, I always look at like menopause as like putting a, a magnifying glass on your lifestyle, basically, because it's that's a symptom of what what are you doing with your lifestyle? How are you living your life? And I think with society and just the fast paced and emails and TVs and news that you're, you know, at the ready, we're, we're constantly bombarded with that. And like you had alluded to earlier, marketing, you know, right now we're getting very targeted towards, towards supplements that aren't necessarily going to help us, but we're kind of here for it, you know, because right. we're, we're grasping for like what, what's going to help. Yeah, for sure. I see that a lot. And even, you know, if you think about women who maybe are just post-menopause now, but how much nutrition information has changed from the 1980s or 90s, 2000s till now, there's even been changes in recommendations and advice. And that can be very frustrating too, because these women, you know, conventionally, maybe, maybe they're following like a lower fat diet in the nineties or before that, maybe like slim fast was popular. And so there's a lot of conflicting information and then supplements, you know, a lot of supplements targeting weight loss may have a lot of stimulants and different things in there. Whereas, as you mentioned, because menopause is this magnifying glass on the lifestyle, a lot of women actually need to slow down or move to more restorative exercise practices, maybe incorporate more walking, a little bit of yoga and things like that. And we need to strength train as well to pr preserve bone density and muscle mass. So there may just be a different sort of recipe or cocktail that we're working towards to be optimal for you in menopause versus maybe in your 20s and 30s, if you did a lot of cardio or high intensity training, maybe a different style of diet. Um, now we have other considerations, like Kathy mentioned, in terms of sleep and stress, blood sugar management, things that maybe weren't a concern before. And I think it just deserves its own own sort of approach versus lumping women in the menopausal transition in with the rest of the health and fitness crowd, because 
just because something works for someone when they're 32 years old doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be best for the person who's 54 and also has a lot of responsibilities and maybe has dieted several times in the past and is trying to get a handle on, okay, what's best for me now during this point in time in my life? Yeah, I think I'm the poster child too for <laughs> for those those modalities that just don't work. It used to work, right? In my 30s and then early 40s. And then we get stuck and we start to see like, it's not as easy to lose weight anymore. It comes back faster. So I think the, the response is to diet harder, right? Or to work out harder. And that's just putting more stress on the body and not doing what we think it's doing. Right. And we're like, and I I hear this one a lot. I have to work out to, to drive off the stress, not realizing that this, and we're talking like cardio, high intensity classes, like I need to do this to drive off the crazy, right. I need to go run, not realizing that this is actually compounding, just kind of just adding more fuel to the fire of that stress piece. And so, yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. And that high intensity exercise in small doses can be essentially a positive stressor, what some people call hormesis. But if we're doing too much of it and we can't recover from it, you know, an issue related to menopause, since we were talking about sleep earlier, is our exercise recovery may not quite be the same. Also due to what I mentioned earlier with stress and insulin and cortisol, we may see some changes in appetite and our ability to regulate our blood sugar and how satiated we are after meals. Plus, if you couple that with some of the metabolic changes, you know, we can't really continue to just eat the same and expect the same results when we have this sort of change in our underlying physiology. So we still need to be focusing on movement. It just may be a different type of movement. We still need to focus on nutrition. It just might be different nutritional adjustments. And there's just a special emphasis, as you mentioned, because of that magnifying glass, we do have this special emphasis on lifestyle of stress and sleep. And once we manage those, it makes it easier to actually stick to the diet or master our nutrition. It makes it easier to see results in the gym because we're having more productive workouts. And so while we still have some of these rules, you know, for example, like energy balance and trying to focus on our calories, if we're not managing our stress and sleep or our lifestyle, and if we're over-exercising, what we actually may see is a significant increase in appetite. So we might actually be out eating our exercise efforts. And then that's why you may see you know, body fat come back, or you might be frustrated with the scale or your body composition is shifting and not in the direction that you want it to. So that's why we. it may seem as though we're focusing on something else that's counterintuitive, but it's actually sort of supercharging your efforts in these other areas related to diet and exercise. How important is, so I, I'm come from like the macro perspective, right? And, you know, also the, if it fits your macros, but have learned that, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the macros or the perfect diet that's going to help you, you know, help you get to the results that you're trying to achieve. But as far as like the role in fats on like insulin and cortisol, like how important I've tended, I've noticed that if we increase the fats a little bit more from where ladies were at kind of what we see a lot of is that like 1200 calorie diet thing. Right. But then they're also kind of going off the rails in the weekend where now it's just like too much. So not enough here and just way too much on the bookends. And so what is the role with fat and cortisol? So as far as, you know, consuming dietary fats, I think for some people, it could be more of like a appetite management tool, or they may find that the foods they enjoy contain dietary fat. And so if they deprive themselves, then they're like you said, there might be some patterns of restricting and then overeating and restricting and overeating. 
usually, you know, in athletic populations, there's most people find there's more of a mechanism as far as that direct relationship between carbohydrates and cortisol. But when we consume dietary fat, it is sort of a precursor to some of our hormones. So it's still important for a lot of reasons. And with a lot of both male and female populations, very important for our joint health, our brain health, and so many other aspects. So dietary fat, I think, can be a mix of just getting enough for health reasons. And especially if you are listening to this and maybe you're still of reproductive age and not necessarily moving through perimenopause, we do need that dietary fat as far as for hormone synthesis. And we do see some changes when we drop below like 20 to 25% in terms of our dietary fats. For the menopausal population, I think it can be a combination of things in terms of appetite management, satiety, potentially the foods that we enjoy. And if it causes us to potentially reduce our carbohydrate intake, because we're we're enjoying those foods or we're seeing results with it, then that's also creating a shift in our energy balance as well. So dietary fat definitely has an important role there. And then I think for some people, you know, it may be if they are experiencing blood sugar issues, it could help in terms of just evening things out a bit versus riding kind of that simple carbohydrate roller coaster if we're eating maybe instead of single ingredient foods, if we're having more processed foods, that if it fits your macros approach that you kind of mentioned, we're eating a lot of those. We may be struggling with glycemic regulation, especially in menopause when we see insulin creeping up already. I think okay. for a lot of women, it's mainly, like you said, they start to crave those foods if they're not eating you know, a varied macronutrient profile and maybe just replacing, like if they were low fat before, it's probably helping them just in terms of balancing their blood sugar and everything like that. All right. Yeah. So... Um, I think from that, it, from satiating, right. That satiating point of view, like that definitely does help, but not trying to go over too, too much, right. Unless you are trying to go like a ketogenic approach, which might be in, <laughs> might be needed in some cases, but not for menopausal women is kind of the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then did you want to discuss kind of the role of any of the other macronutrients or blood sugar aspects or kind of jump into more of the lifestyle factors. I think it would be great to touch on blood sugar as well. I think one thing that maybe changes for women over the years is they maybe didn't have to monitor their blood sugar as much as before. And now it's something that can really be a hindrance for them in terms of reaching their goals. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Let's jump in with that one then. Okay. So as far as blood sugar regulation, how would you recommend somebody go about that with nutritionally? For sure. So I think, you know, as we mentioned, potentially when we have these sort of energetic nutrients, right, dietary fat and, and carbohydrate, those are, you know, tools that we can use depending on personal preference. But what some women might have been doing before in terms of higher carbohydrate diet may not be working as well in menopause because we might just see just a slight degree more of insulin resistance, especially if we are struggling with sleep loss, having high stress, potentially our exercise patterns are changing. And so as we're sort of building this lifestyle, you know, blood sugar is super, super important for both just overall health and appetite management. If we don't have, you know, our blood sugar regulated, that does pose some health risks, both in terms of, you know, metabolism, but also just systemic inflammation and things of that nature when we just constantly have this sort of hyperglycemic state. So with blood sugar management from a nutrition perspective, I really like to use protein as kind of a cornerstone nutrient and then fiber depending on digestive tolerance. So everyone can kind of get away with different amounts of fiber depending on their digestion, what foods work best for them. But protein is really a cornerstone. And then for women in menopause, this isn't so much a nutritional suggestion, but incorporating walking post meals, especially if you are working on improving your digestion, but that can be great for blood sugar management as well. So 
The biggest nutrition hack, I think, for blood sugar would be having protein at your meals and focusing on kind of having like a well-balanced meal profile or, you know, having some protein or maybe you're having some dietary fat there, maybe some vegetables, maybe fruit or other carbohydrate there if it's works works for you and depending on your activity level. And then we can use some non-nutritional tools. So things like walking and then actually getting more sleep can help us in terms of our blood sugar too. So one thing that we often forget is even you know, a slight bit of sleep loss, but a set, especially when we're dealing with consecutive nights of disrupted sleep or poor sleep, we do begin to see blood sugar consequences from that and reduced insulin sensitivity across the population. So that's not just exclusive to menopausal women, but sleep is just incredibly important for all of us in terms of our insulin sensitivity and how our metabolisms are sort of functioning. So from a nutrition side, definitely, you know, focus on your protein and then fiber, depending on how you do from a digestive perspective with that fiber. And then on the non-nutrition side, I'd be looking at tools like, you know, getting your walking in, getting your steps up and then focusing on your sleep. Yeah. And like that was definitely a common, a common issue is having those sleep interruptions, you know, with the night sweats and the hot sweats and just not having a full night's of sleep. I know I definitely experienced that myself and it had a huge effect on my productivity the next day, my energy levels, again, just feeling kind of snackety, kind of hungry, like all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really important. So let's, let's dive into that, into the sleep piece and Of course. So hot flashes are probably one of the most bothersome aspects of the perimenopausal transition in terms of our biofeedback. And so temperature regulation becomes really important, you know, having a cool room. There's actually a brand new study that just came out on the role of cooling mattress pads. And it was for a small group of women. So some women do find success with that to help regulate body temperature, things like hydrotherapy or doing some contrast hydrotherapy or a hot you know, if you're not a big fan of contrast hydrotherapy, even a hot bath or shower can potentially help because our body's going to try to cool down after that. Um, you know, having that cool dark room definitely helps as well. And then paying attention to our meal timing close to bed and finding out what works best for you. Because if we are struggling with our blood sugar stability, we need to find the right mix of macronutrients and the right timing in terms of when we're consuming that meal in terms of that pre-bed sort of window. Some people can get away with having that food a little bit closer. Some people need to have more of a smaller snack that's more protein dense, closer to bedtime. You know, other people may want to leave a few hours just in terms of where they get their optimal sleep. There's also some supplements that can be helpful. I do really like using things like glycine for for women, especially in the perimenopausal transition, but there's a lot of those lifestyle hacks and behaviors. So something as simple as, you know, using a bath or hydrotherapy, have, you know, a good wind down routine and then focusing, you know, maybe things you didn't pay attention to as much before, like the ambient temperature in the room or um, what your actual, you know, environment was like, even in terms of things like if you're comfortable, you know, in your actual, you know, bed sheets that you have, your comforter, and even looking into things like, so Chili Sleep or Uller makes a number of different cooling mattress options. So that can definitely be a great thing to look into as well. If you are wanting to like kind of add accessories on top of your baseline routine. Yeah, I've looked into those. They're they're a little on the pricey side, but you know, it might be it might be worth it. Yeah. To- most most accessible option for most women is you know see how you feel after a shower or reading in a bath or doing something that's already accessible to you. And then if you find that wow, like controlling my temperature is really making a big difference here, that might be where you layer something like that in. And over time, it's kind of like when you invest in a good quality mattress, you might see sleep improvements there too. So I look at it as okay, what, what do you have access to already? What, are, what is your baseline routine? What's already in your environment? And then from that, 
we can always build over time and, and kind of construct something that works best for the individual. Yeah, I definitely learned from you that having a sleep routine is is important. And just having that that wind down time where you just calm, you just calm your mind, because I think that's when we tend to ruminate on all the, you know, the stress builds up. And then we start to have the conversations in our head about, oh, I should have said this, or what did they mean by that? And just kind of like, I have sometimes that monkey mind chatter or God, did I, I forgot to send that text, you know, or and those things, those are the little things that keep you up at night. So I did Definitely. find magnesium to be helpful with that. I personally do have a couple of Brazil nuts before I go to bed. And I have found ashwagandha to be very helpful as well, which is kind of calming everything down, having a cup of tea and just kind of chilling out rather than just going, you know, going, 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 yeah. and then trying to go to bed. <laughs> Yeah, I think consistent use of adaptogens, so things like ashwagandha or rhodiola can be great, especially if you are an individual who's under, you know, higher stress or, you know, just like you, Kathy, I mean, you have a fair amount of responsibility in running a business. You do this podcast, you create a lot of content for women in the menopausal transition. So for someone like you, I think having that routine, but then some supportive supplementation on top of paying attention to your nutrition is really great. I, I really enjoy ashwagandha. There's some other things we can use in terms of if we wanted to build on that sleep support stack, maybe including some things like theanine or some women are deficient in magnesium. So having a good magnesium product with the ashwagandha can be really great. And, and then we can kind of adjust that and titrate that and play with different options that are going to be best for the person. But even something like just that practice that you had kind of that anchor with, you know, I have a cup of tea and, you know, I take some time for myself. I think that can make a massive difference in our sleep too. Because as you mentioned, we have to shift out of that rumination mode and actually be able to kind of quiet our mind, which a lot of us can really struggle to do. And that basically just makes that sleep latency time so much longer than if we just took a little bit upfront to really decompress, unplug a little bit, get off of our technology, and then be able to go to sleep with a little bit more of a calm mind. Yeah, that's definitely made a difference for me for sure. <laughs> I was like seeing that, like addressing that and being like, yeah, that might, that might be interfering. So also like a morning routine too, like to kind of reset that circadian rhythm. I think we're kind of removed from, we're so focused on this inside or maybe work environment or going to, going to, to our jobs. And yeah, you know, if you have time, that's great, but really making the time to make sure that you do get out in the morning and get some of some sunlight, at least that's how I like to set up my day. I, it doesn't have to be a long, long routine. I used to have this long routine and I just couldn't keep up with it. But now for me, it just looks like 20 minutes. It's like a 10 minute walk around the neighborhood in as much light as possible. And then kind of just saying how I want to set my day and then having like a 10 minute meditation somewhere, somewhere in my morning before I actually hit the ground running to kind of center myself and set yourself up for the day. Yeah, I really like that. And I think routines are customizable just depending on what works. And if you like that kind of 10 minute window of these different things, I think that's great. And I love that you touched on the circadian health aspect because so much of what we experience in terms of our nighttime sleep quality and how we do in terms of even being able to fall asleep, excuse me, is contingent upon getting that sunlight at the right times of day. So 
getting outside earlier on, getting out of artificial light. And even, you know, even if it's a cloudy day, even getting outside, even just briefly in the morning is very advantageous for helping to just keep that healthy circadian rhythm. Because ideally, you know, we want most of that cortisol production in the morning. And at night, we actually want you know, a nice bolus of melatonin production. And those two are inverse to each other. So light light and temperature are actually both key signals as far as our sleep-wake response. So, you know, starting to warm up earlier in the morning and then also getting that light as far as on our optic nerves and our eyes, and then also on our skin, very, very good. And then, you know, as you mentioned, pairing that with an evening routine. And so depending on the person and their current lifestyle, we might start with one or the other, seeing what they're struggling with most, and then building on that over time and stacking different things. Because if we go from having no routine and being super stressed out and pretty poor lifestyle, at least as it pertains to our fitness goals, it can be really challenging to turn that on its head. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I have this pre-bed routine. I need to do this morning thing. And I need to be tracking my nutrition. And I need to also you know, hit the gym too. And all of a sudden, you know, that gets a pretty overwhelming, but I think for the people who are already putting forth a lot of effort, and as you said, going to those high intensity cardio classes every day, it's like, it's just sort of shifting where the effort is, you know, you're already paying attention to these things. You're trying really hard to achieve a goal. It's just, we need to put that focus on something just slightly different. That's going to be more helpful and, and compound towards your success over the long term. Yeah, I, I did used to have, I've definitely have altered my my routines as I've gone through. It used to be a really long morning routine and then I wasn't getting anything done. I thought I was being productive because I have my morning routine, but I wasn't really getting anything done with that. So I've had to kind of shift that around to make that really work for me. So like you said, it's, it's going to be individual. You can't just hop into something else because that can be just as stressful as well. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. To, and I can to totally relate on the long morning routine. I think it can be if you go too far with it, it can be overkill. And then you're stressed because the time that you could have spent getting things done, you know, you're going through and <laughs> the routine almost becomes counterproductive to your other stress levels because by not working in a time that you had to work, it's like, then you're doing it later in the day and then you have a hard time sleeping. So it's striking that balance of carving out a little bit of time for yourself to generate momentum for the day and feel really like you're in a really good place without the overwhelm of, oh my God, I just spent two hours, you know, doing all these things. And now I don't have any time to get my stuff done. So I'm really glad you yeah. mentioned what what I find is a lot of women are just just not taking care of themselves, you know, appropriately. So, you know, like you wouldn't send your your child off to school, right? With not having enough sleep. We want to make sure that they're going to bed, brushing their teeth, you know, getting to bed on time, getting up, brushing their teeth, having something to eat. And yet I see women are just like, don't disregard themselves entirely and just grab a coffee and start their day and don't even eat until like noon. So how would that affect someone's stress, Sam? Yeah. So when we're not eating, we're essentially priming our body with a response that's sort of this fasted state, right? And doing that sometimes can be okay. But if we're also in a pretty steep calorie deficit, so as you mentioned, Kathy, a lot of these women come to you eating around 1200 calories. And so if we're already under eating, we're sort of sending a very similar signal, which actually raises cortisol, that stress hormone that we talked about earlier, in attempt to manage our blood sugar. So because we're under eating, we actually get this fasted state physiology response, or basically it's a fasted state hormone response where we're releasing things like cortisol and glucagon. And that's the body's attempt to regulate our blood sugar naturally without incoming food versus when we eat, we have a very different response. And so by paying attention to our meals, and what we do with our nutrition and the timing of that nutrition, we can help to just balance that over the course of a day. Now, if you're drastically under eating, 
that's really the biggest primary issue, right? We're just not consuming enough energy in general. And if we're overeating relative to our goals, that's going to be the bigger problem. But then within that, those two extremes, you know, there's certainly folks where it's like, maybe they're just not quite eating enough. And then we're skipping breakfast and things. And we're, you're basically doubling down on that same response of, Hey, there's no food coming in. And for some people, they might may find that they're hungrier. So by delaying breakfast, they've essentially now eaten more and overconsumed at lunch, a snack and dinner versus maybe if they ate earlier in the day, it could be helpful. So some folks do a little bit better with, you know, consuming breakfast or a snack or maybe a smoothie in the morning and then going about their meal schedule. And maybe even because of sleep improvements, maybe they stop shortly after dinner. That's kind of when they begin tapering their food intake and that might improve their sleep. And then for other folks, if it helps them in terms of adhering to their nutrition, they might get by with something smaller in the morning or maybe not eating as much, but that's going to be contingent. I think, you know, those fasting windows work better for someone with a lower stress lifestyle. Who's not doing super high intensity exercise. Who's not on like a 1200 calorie diet. So if we're eating enough through the course of the day, we have lower stress, you know, maybe someone who's retired and going for walks or doing some yoga, that's very, very different than, oh, I'm trying to go to this high intensity cardio class at 9am and I didn't need anything. And then I'm going to work out. We're just sending you know, additional stimulus versus having you know recovery or those, those food signals coming in as well. So it's really a balance and we have to find what works best for, for the individual. But certainly for the population you mentioned earlier, that may be adding insult to injury and also making it a little bit harder in terms of their nutrition. Can you address caffeine and and the the impact on, I would say like, and I don't know this for sure, but caffeine does seem to have effects on night sweats and hot flashes and then also sleep interruption as well. And we're just kind of living on caffeine and <laughs> yeah, I think this can, I've seen this very, very significantly from woman to woman and working with a number of women over the years, how this can sort of impact. Um, now I would say timing is first and foremost, what we have to consider and the dose, you know, as far as black and white, yes to caffeine, no to caffeine. There are some women that can still have a cup of coffee in the morning. And as long as they're pretty mild with their intake, we can still get things like sleep improved and hot flashes under control. Where I see problems is if you're reaching for that coffee or an energy drink or something late in the day or late in the afternoon, and we're basically, you know, stimulating that HPA axis, we're adding, you know, caffeine and stimulants, and then caffeine has a fairly long half-life. So then that's still in our system when we're trying to wind down and go to bed. So one of the biggest issues I've seen in the perimenopausal transition is maybe it's like, whether it's grabbing the kids after school or, you know, having other responsibilities or still working. And so at two, 3 PM, 4 PM folks reaching for, you know, more caffeine, I think that's the most detrimental to sleep. And will probably compound issues if someone's already experiencing sleep interruptions due to hot flashes. So that timing is is really something we need to pay attention to and ideally moving that up so that's not in the afternoon. I prefer for folks to have, if they are going to have a small dose of caffeine doing it in the first portion of the day, ideally keeping most of it before lunch would be, be ideal. But caffeine's going to cause some problems there. And then if we're already seeing some issues in terms of our cortisol levels, and we are a little bit more sort of stress reactive, you know, caffeine does sort of mechanistically contribute to that. But I think um, for a lot of people, it's like the poison is in the dose. And then also in terms of the timing of what they're experiencing, but I've definitely seen in some women have a, you know, an unfavorable reaction in terms of their hot flashes and their sleep. And then other women where 
as long as they're just keeping, maybe it's a cup or two of coffee earlier in the day. And as long as the timing is okay and they don't go over a certain amount, like we keep it under you know a few hundred milligrams, they're able to, to tolerate it a lot better. So that's kind of how I view. And that's, I honestly look at that as a whole population, regardless of just perimenopausal clients, but there is a possibility that women in that particular bracket would be a little bit more sensitive to the stimulants, or it may affect their results and and their sleep a little bit more. Yeah. It's not all gloom and doom, ladies. You can still have caffeine. Just kind of take a look and yeah, see. Just be careful. Know. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is if you're having it like 5 PM or, you know, the late afternoon hours, that's really going to start to be disruptive to sleep. Some people, they may get away with that afternoon caffeine, especially when they're younger, if they're a little bit fast metabolizers in terms of caffeine and, and looking at its overall half-life, but general rule of thumb, most of us really need to keep it during that first portion of the day and then just monitor, you know, the overall total intake that we have. Yeah. I still see the, the Starbucks line is, is still pretty, pretty brisk <laughs> yeah. Yeah. when I, when I go by, but that's, you know, I think exercise too, but I think that's individual as well. Like how, to, how you're going to tolerate like exercise later on in the day. Yeah. Know? If it's a body heat related issue. So if you have a hard time cooling down after your workouts or the intensity of your workouts, it, we might see some benefit to moving it up earlier in the afternoon or midday, or even a morning workout. If we are really struggling with especially, you know, cooling down for sleep. Or if you're having, you know, if you are raising your body temperature and you're having caffeine before bed, then all of a sudden, you know, when, when you're trying to get in that 6 or 7 PM workout or go to that class, if you're relying on caffeine to get there and have the motivation to do the workout, and then you're raising your body temperature, that's when clients really tend to have the hardest time sleeping is when they combine those two things together. And on top of a stressful day with that rumination you mentioned, that's like the absolute disaster in terms of your sleep quality. So if anyone's experiencing that, we really want to focus on improving that first will really help us in terms of our overall transformation. Yeah. And I find us one of the most common ways to wind down is with wine (laughs) or some kind of alcohol, which again, is just like putting fuel on the, as far as sleep interruptions go. Right. So alcohol can definitely be more problematic for some, I think in terms of sleep quality, or we like, we think that we're getting better sleep, but in reality we're, we're not, or we may have more disrupted sleep. As I mentioned earlier, certain women, as far as the menopausal population, if we're prone to certain micronutrient deficiencies, alcohol may exacerbate that. And if we're having a hard time adhering to the appropriate amount of calories for our goals, you know, alcohol is energy containing. So even though it's not a carbohydrate, a protein, or a fat, it's still adding to our daily intake. And a lot of people view it very differently because it's not you know, a meal or protein containing food or anything that really is viewed as, oh, I didn't eat pasta, so I'm not having a carb. But, you know, if we're relying on wine to wind down, it's certainly affecting, you know, our overall nutrition intake. But as you mentioned, Kathy, and and stated earlier, very simply is just, you know, it's not going to necessarily be the best thing for our sleep overall in terms of quantity, excuse me, quantity, quality, and potentially even those body temperature issues. Cause a lot of folks, when they drink, they begin to get a little bit of that flush or warmth from the alcohol, um, you know, which on a cold day might seem like a perk, but if you're trying to sleep and you're experiencing hot flashes, probably not going to be the best thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting information for sure. So I hope that this kind of sheds a little bit of light on, you know, what the importance is of like 
just kind of taking a look at sleep and stress and how that might be affecting your symptoms in menopause. Is there anything that else that you want to add, Sam, to kind of to kind of wrap it up? I think we did a really good job of hitting most of the main topics and a lot of great questions, Kathy. And I love that you used the phrase because it's something that I'm not sure I've heard you mention before, but I really liked how you referred to menopause as a magnifying glass. I also liked our discussion of both stress and sleep-related concepts and considering common sort of pitfalls related to nutrition and then even the type of exercise, alcohol and things like that, which can certainly play a role for perimenopausal women. And then the last thing I would kind of, you know, add to the conversation is just remembering that this is a time of transition, a different season of life. It's okay to use a different approach to try to achieve your goals. It can seem a little bit scary at first, but that can oftentimes be helpful if what you were doing before is not bringing you the results that you're looking for and you're somewhat non-responsive. So I think that's huge. I think a lot of the elements we talked about today, there's a strong theme of having self-awareness of how things are going, how you're feeling, being aware of your body's biofeedback. I think that's very important. And then you know, starting with some key cornerstone items, whether it's the morning walk that Kathy goes on or having a really good wind down routine for bed, or maybe it's strength training three days a week. There's probably certain things that you may be doing that we can build a really great routine and lifestyle around. So as much as we talked about a variety of topics, we can pull out sort of key items and themes that could really help a lot of women have more leverage, whether it's for their fat loss or overall health. And so that would probably be the only thing that I would want to add because in the discussion, it can sometimes seem like a lot of information or a little bit of overwhelm at times. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for for that wrap up. As far as, as links, I'm going to put links into the show notes. I highly, highly recommend that you listen to Sam's podcast. He, you can, you can keyword search any of the topics that we just discussed in under Sam Miller science under his podcast, you're going to see a ton of information on any of the topics that we just discussed. And where is the, where, where do you hang out? Right. Mostly on Instagram, how, what, where can I for, For folks who are listening along, if this is for your own health journey, Instagram is great. And then I have my book that recently came out as well, would be a great resource. Transparently, probably spend the most time on the podcast. And then social media-wise, Instagram is really great. I do have a community for coaches on Facebook, but as far as for the most part, I'd say those two places, the podcast and Instagram are where I spend most of my time. Okay. And you're Sam Miller science on, on similar science on just about everything. If yeah, this, as far as I know, if you go on any platform and you type in Sam Miller science, it should be me. I do also have some blogs and things on my website as well, which is sammillerscience.com. So if you're not a big social media person, the blogs on the website and the podcast are probably going to be best for you or checking out the book, which is metabolism made simple which I do have here. And I am going to be giving away a copy of this book. So the first person that shares a screenshot of the podcast, once it comes out and then tag us both. So tag Sam Miller science, and then tag me as well, Kathy catalyst, both with a K and I'm going to leave the instructions for that. But the first person that shares a screenshot, they're going to get a copy of that book. So I will reach out to you and get your mailing address and just order it through, through Amazon. It'll be in your hot little hands and a couple of days. So I appreciate that, Kathy. Thank you for supporting the book and really love the conversation around women's health today. Thank you so much for coming on. I I appreciate it. And I will see you soon. See you soon, Kathy. Thank you. 